So, yeah, we've had a lot of life experiences, a lot of things to talk about, because we believed things when we were in high school, we were taught things when we were in high school, you and I. We had conversations about these same topics, but we mm-hmm. didn't have the knowledge that we have today. That's right. And it's a beautiful thing that 33 years later, we can come together and find so much common ground and mm-hmm. find so many things to agree on. Okay, what I go. did was I, I drafted two articles for the for the website yeah I saw that mm-hmm. okay and so one of them was the meaning crisis and we're going to talk about that next okay. but the first one has to do with a return to God yeah and, the antheism I right think is, is what they were and, and I put next to that I said God is not what you think mm-hmm. and when I say that what I'm really really mean is that true faith is beyond theology a hundred percent Revealing truth by exposing lies. What does that mean? That means that on this podcast, we're going to talk about a variety of subjects, but we have an intention in mind, and that is to move beyond political ideology, religious dogmatism, tribalism, and nationalism, even beyond personal opinion, beyond false authorities that so many people don't even question, and taking you, the audience, someplace that you may not be quite ready to go, to that place beyond us and them. Here we are again, Dwight. Yep, here we two, are. We're two dimwits giving the world our two cents. <laughs> There's an old joke. Do you remember the joke? I think it's a... Two cents and a, and a dollar will buy you a cup of coffee or something. It, well, yeah, something. No, it was something else about only having half cents or something like that. Yeah, fifty cents. Well, the old joke for you is you're you're Dwight half right, half right Hicknight. Half right Hicknight. Call me. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yep. Half right. Well, it's better than most people. What's that? If you get it half right, you're doing good. Because <laughs> they could say three quarters wrong. So we both had a busy week. We're now sitting yep. sitting down here at the cafe on Broadway to enjoy a nice coffee. Yes, sir. And uh, it's a Monday night, so it's not too busy. I and mean, there's one or two people coming and going, but for the most part, we've got the run of the place. It's like yep. our second living room here. <laughs> pretty much. It's starting to get to those pretty well. Yeah, you know, the first time I came in here, I didn't even realize the paintings on the wall. Were they not here, or, or have they been changed, or... Because I'm noticing some good artwork in here. Uh, some of these are new. Okay. Yeah, this is this is really new. Like the girl with the violin. That's yeah, I didn't notice that. And the woman over there, and the the lighting on her face, and that's very realistic looking. Yeah. And then there's another one over here in the corner that I thought was excellent. That's more um, impressionistic. So there's some real good artwork going on. Yeah, here. this is this is uh, this is all new. Um, you know, I was here Saturday. For our coffee and community, which, by the way, was freaking awesome. No, I worked that. It was my first night oh, on the job, dude, my new job. You missed. So I missed out. Oh, we had man. some people there for the first time. Well, yeah, my friend Josh showed up. Nice. And uh, then I, our old buddy Corma showed up. Good, good. And then we had someone who was a complete stranger to all of us. And if you're out there listening, forgive me because I cannot pronounce your name. Uh, but uh, it was similar to Fatima, but something different. Okay. She was from uh, Iran. Okay, so she speaks Farsi then, I would yeah, guess. Farsi. Yeah, Farsi. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And um, she is, um, you know, being here in this small town, she is the first genuine scientist that I've actually ever met in person. 
Oh, good. She can do a peer review on our podcast. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, let's I don't know if we call it peers. That might be stretching it. Yeah, they're definitely not peers. We have to get her sure. and somebody else to make and, it a peer review. And if they did peer review, they'd throw us out in the first five minutes anyway. So. <laughs> but she, she's, a, she's a geneticist. Oh, really? For a uh, uh, chicken producer here in town. Oh, okay. And... Uh, Fantastic, a very interesting woman to meet, about uh, our age, and uh, just real sweet and interesting, and you know, kind of meeting up with, uh, you know, our subject for the night, uh, kind of relating a little bit to that uh, spirituality, which, are, which is our subject. She's an atheist. Okay. And she said something to me that I've never heard before, and... Uh, made me have a whole new understanding of some atheists, I suppose. Um, right. But she said, other than kids who are mad at God claiming to be atheists, she's the first genuine atheist I've met. Okay. Genuine. And she said, she's not saying, atheists don't believe that there is no God. They believe that there's not enough evidence to prove that there is a God. Uh-huh. Now, the thing is, if you lived in ancient Rome and you were a Christian, uh, the Roman citizens there would consider you an atheist because you didn't believe in their gods. In their gods, exactly. Right. So the word atheist is contextual. Right, it certainly is. For her, though, it, it was it's very interesting. I mean, she, I mean, you could see the scientific thinking in, in, in her because she is all about empirical evidence. You know, because there's no, she, she believed that there was not enough empirical evidence to prove that there was God. But she was not like militant, you know, there is no God because that's what I believe. It was not that. Yeah. It was like, she's not going to deny the possibility of God, but because she's a scientist and she looks at empirical evidence, she's going to say the evidence does not prove to her that there is a God. Of course... The conversation turned from there, and, and you know, if she comes back again, yeah. I hope she does, uh, if she comes back again, I'm going to ask her a little bit more about that, because looking at empirical evidence for and against God is like comparing an apple to a coconut, man, because the, the existence of God is not anything that you can prove and not something that you can disprove. It's a matter of faith. Well, I think it's also important that we try to, uh, in this kind of conversation, there's a, um, uh, you have to define your terms. So, to start with, so, you, you know, because God can mean different things to different people. Yeah. And if I said supreme being, then we're having a different conversation because if you say there's no evidence for for a supreme being, I'd say there's evidence all around us for a supreme being. Well, keep in mind that you were talking about um, there was two people sitting here talking, and since she is from Iran, she grew up as a Muslim. Right. So and I grew up as kind of a Christian, or at least in a Christian culture. So yeah. And your culture both... had no atheists in it. Yeah. Right. Well. <laughs> You live in Siloam. Yeah, right, Siloam, yeah. Siloam, let's not forget, we're in the Guinness Book of World Records for having the most, most churches, churches per capita. Absolutely. And you're sitting here across from me, 51 years old, saying you never met an atheist before. <laughs> well, keep in mind, again, context, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the word God it could mean, like, the thing that I have learned is, um, like, the Stoic philosophers believed in God. Yeah, Logos. And the Christians believe in God, but what they would say is that, you know, I don't believe in the God you believe in. 
So it's so that's the thing. You've got the Muslim idea of God. You got the Christian Judeo-Christian concept of, of course, God. There are both. These Abrahamic are all loaded visions of God. That's there true. Abrahamic understandings of God. And if you move to the Eastern world, there is Caleb. a different hey, understanding. Uh, good. How are you doing? Good to see you. Good to see Out you. of context. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's nice to have a day off. My feet hurt. Yeah. I need a day off to recuperate. recuperate. Every day? Yeah, I'll be going back tomorrow. I think at 2 o'clock. I'm not yeah. sure. I have to double check. Me too. Yeah. So that's one of my coworkers here. You're welcome to join the conversation. Uh, we're doing a podcast here, so you know, or you can just you know not join us. That's fine either way. Oh, okay. Well, we're gonna get out. Of, we're gonna get out of here and stop bothering you. So um, pretty soon. Thank you. I didn't know you were a musician. That's great. Yeah, I'm a singer songwriter. Oh, is that right? How do you do live music there at the 28 Springs sometimes, or is that um, a different band? Or that is Sweet 25. Okay, Sweet 25. Like, they only do once a month. But once a month. I'm gonna do some shows at the Park House and uh-huh. at Creekside this summer. Nice. So what's your podcast? Uh, two Dimwits. Mm-hmm. You have a that's you, you're, you're looking you're like, at us. <laughs> there we are. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Nice. Yin and Yang here. He's on the right, I'm on the left. We talk about politics and religion and stuff that nobody wants to talk about. Mm-hmm. Too afraid to talk about or whatever. Well, I was going to say, those are the things that people yeah. try to avoid talking about. So if you can find somebody on the other side, you can talk about it with. Yeah. The, whole, the whole idea is to find common ground. Common ground, yeah, right. That's right. Sure. So you just use the expression yin-yang. Yeah, yin-yang. Yeah. That's, that's a subject that I... That's a term that I use when I'm talking to somebody who has a different view of God than I do. Opposite, yeah. Okay, so what, and the way I frame that conversation is I say, okay, um, we both believe in God, but you believe in yin, and I believe in yang. Uh-huh. That's a good way of looking at it. Now, if you look at the Taoist perspective, um, true Taoist philosophy doesn't believe in the existence of God. Mm-hmm. Their understanding is that the Tao is a unknowable, unexplainable, unspeakable force that creates balance in the universe and was existed before creation and will exist after creation. Frankly, um, but the, the problem with that is that the Chinese, over the course of the last... Uh, let's see, 3,000 years or so, have turned it into a religion and have basically um, taken three, I wish I could remember what they were, three characteristics or three virtues that Lao Tzu talked about in the Tao Te Ching and turned them into gods. Right. So now they have idols and right. they offer sacrifices to these gods. Right. Whereas Lao Tzu never talked about God. Yeah. So well, that's, it's you kind find of interesting that, how that is. It's I find that also with Buddhism, for example. You know, the Sagotha was uh, someone who was an unconventional thinker of his time. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, he he spent several uh, years of his life um, going to different gurus and studying 
uh, yoga and various other meditation practices and trying to reach enlightenment and all that stuff because that's what everybody was doing. Right. Right. And he got to the point where he just said, okay, this isn't working. None of this stuff is valid. Uh-huh. And that's when he had his paradigm shift and his enlightenment. It's referred to as, you know, becoming the Buddha. Right. And the Buddha just means to wake up. Right. He's just someone who woke up. He didn't become a god. Right. You know, right. in fact, someone approached him when he, on the road soon after that, and they, they saw his radiance and his joy, and they asked him, are you a god? And he said, no, I'm not a god. Mm-hmm. And then they said, are you a man? He says, no, I'm not a man. <laughs> Boy, that sounds real familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, what are you? And he says, I'm awake. I'm awake. Beautiful. And that's where the Buddha uh, came from, the name Buddha. So, but yet there's a branch of Buddhism that has turned him into a god. That's right. Yeah. So this is what happens uh, with any kind of spiritual enlightenment over the course of time. Uh, it crystallizes and becomes religion. And it becomes uh, rigid yeah. and it becomes... Um, Dogmatic. For lack of a better term, organized, I guess. Organized, uh, hierarchical, you might say. Right. It, there's yeah. a certain... Uh, you know, rules and expectations and obligations, etc. And um, it degenerates into that kind it of... degenerates into, instead of seeking enlightenment or guidance from the supernatural, it degenerates into a set of rituals or a set of actions. It's, it's, it's as if mankind has to turn something that is beyond his comprehension into something that he can comprehend. Yeah, and a lot yeah. of people will look at that, especially uh, militant atheists, they'll look at that and they'll say that religion is just a control system. And, uh, right. And there's, there's a, I mean, uh, I can't dispute that. I mean, I can't argue with that. You can't dispute, but, but you cannot dispute that if you're talking about religion in the way that most of humanity has been raised to understand it. It's a hierarchy, it's a control yeah. system. It controls, you know, it's been used to control behavior, it's been used to wage war, all of these other things. Really, it, 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 lays, it lies at the base of any culture. I mean, any culture, you know. Yes, yeah. yeah. And so the thing is that it's the, cult, it's the, it's the glue or the structure that, that keeps the culture um, uh, functioning in its hierarchical structure and keeps people in power in their positions of power. Right. So it does become a control group. Absolutely. And you just made me think about, um, and I... The, the very founder of the Christian religion, Jesus of Nazareth, was a person who went against hierarchies. He challenged the authority. He challenged the religion of the day. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that wound up getting him killed. At the same time, the very church that he started, or ecclesia, simply the called-out assembly, the church that he started became the very thing that he challenged. Yeah, and that yeah. is that is uh, typical. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, it, it is. I mean, again, <clears throat> to Lao Tzu, he would he would be, I think, really, he would be astonished or even disdainful of the idea of turning his philosophy and his belief in something that's unknowable and and uncontrollable, and even to speak is even to talk about it is to say you don't know it. That human beings would turn that into a pantheon of gods they can worship. Right. I think he would have, and he never claimed to be a god. He never, there was right. nothing divine. It was simply wisdom that he talked about, you know. So what is it about the human mind that wants to create a hierarchy out of something that has nothing to do with hierarchies, whereas against hierarchies? 
if you want me to try take a stab at answering that question, I would say that we sure. human beings. Um, I this, let me preface this next my statement by saying that I my opinions on this subject are highly informed by having read M. Scott Peck's book, you know, The Road Less Traveled, and other books that he wrote, like A, a Different Drum. And in this book, The Different Drum, I've made reference to it because we were about building community, and that book yep. was about building community, and sure. he's. He's the one that really inspired me to understand the importance of community, that human beings suffer for lack of community. You know, they suffer for uh, drug addiction, they suffer depression, they suffer various other, you know, self-defeating problems where we sabotage ourselves because uh, we're isolated and and cut off from the community or family that, you know, from each other and uh, for various reasons. Now... He said, and this is, I think, very insightful, is that there are four levels of spiritual awareness. Okay, the first level would be chaos. Sure. And uh, so if you're in chaos, that means that, uh, you know, you might be on your way to going to jail if you don't straighten up your act, right? (laughs) So um, uh, then the second level is structure, okay? Uh Now, jail is a structure, Uh and some people uh, end up in jail because they need structure. If society says you need structure, they're going to put you in jail. Um, Now, other people voluntarily find structure in their job or um, maybe it's in a church. Right. Um, and so, in some ways, you could you could say that jail and church are similar in that respect. Because <laughs> as an ex as an ex pastor, I'm laughing. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I found that to be true. But yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> so, uh, well, it, it's it's very interesting. Now, as we progress in the spiritual awareness um, hierarchy or when you, uh, growth hierarchy, it's not to, it's to be this. There's different kinds of hierarchy as uh, as Jordan Peterson and, uh, and others have, have pointed out. You know, you have the hierarchical power structures, and then you have uh, where people rise up in competence, theoretically, the people at the top are the most competent, that's the idea, and it should work that way. That's the way it should work, yeah, but of course we know There's a lot of failings in that that's respect. Uh, my experience in most businesses is that um, there's a disconnect between the top of the pyramid and the bottom of the pyramid, because the guys at the top make all the money, the guys at the bottom are doing all the work, but the problem is not the top or the bottom, the problem is the middle management, because that's where all the incompetence is, Okay. <laughs> So uh, I'm thinking of a never mind. Um, I was thinking but, about some people I knew. <laughs> okay, so we all know that's true. We've experienced yeah, it. But right. if you but if you push that to the side for a minute and look, realize that there's another hierarchical structure, and that's called the growth structure or spiritual awareness structure. And so you have chaos at the bottom, right? right? That's where you don't want to be. Uh-huh. Um, and then the next level is structure. It gets you structure. out of chaos, right? Okay, but that's not where you want to live your entire life. And the that's, third level is what? The third level is skepticism. Skepticism. So the woman that you met who came to the... She would definitely, she would definitely, she would fall, definitely fall in the third yeah. level. Mm-hmm. Now, some people were born into that level of skepticism because their parents were scientists right. or they came from a home of people who Again, were critical thinkers and what have you. Again, it has so much to do with your upbringing. It does. And, I mean, I don't mean to interrupt you. Whenever I was a pastor for 12 years, what I noticed was that, um, like what we've been talking about, spirituality is embedded in culture. Well, I wouldn't say spirituality is embedded. I'd say religion. religion. Let's go with that. Yeah, dis- we have to make a distinction between is. these two things. You're right, there is. So, so religion is embedded in culture, and, you know... And that's why politics and religion are so in, uh, connected, because I don't see them as being really that different. They're... That for eons, they've been the same thing. Yeah, that's really. Be honest with you. I think it is. I think I think that the way religion is practiced is very much like the way uh, politics is practiced. Right. I don't see a distinction there. 
So here's here's one thing that um, I think, and and Jesus talked about this. Uh, I believe, from what I understand about Buddha, Buddha talked about this, and um, the 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 spirituality goes beyond religion, and it has to do with an individual discovery mm-hmm. of the truth. Right. Now that's the fourth level. What are we getting to? Is that the fourth level? Yeah. So okay. the, the word that's used to describe that, mm-hmm. uh, according to this nomenclature that M. Scott Peck used, was right. uh, he, he he would refer to that as mystical. Mystical. So you have sure. you have at the bottom you have chaos. chaos. You crawl out of chaos structure. into structure. You spend some time in structure to get your life together, but you don't want to stay there forever. And you got um, You you have to continue to grow, and part of growing is becoming a skeptic, starting to question the traditions and the, right. the culture that you've been Absolutely. raised in, and start to say, okay, there's got to be some ultimate meaning underneath this. But And that brings you to the fourth level of mysticism. But when you arrive there, you realize that you didn't get there, uh, you got there through a very personal path, and right. that you cannot then take the knowledge that you have and force that down somebody else's throat, because it's not going to apply to them the That's way it applied exactly to you. Right. And you know, I tell you, I'm not, I haven't read the book, um, and, you know, I don't have as much formal learning as what you do have on this, but I do have experience, and that is exactly what I have discovered. Right. And when I was a pastor, I always tried to encourage, especially younger people, you know, in their 20s or, or late teens, always tried to encourage them to find their own path, to, to not buy the answers that either I was giving them, or the deacons were giving them, or their culture was giving them, but to find their own path. Now, how, how well do you think that went over? Well, you planted seeds, and, and don't think that you didn't. No, no, I mean, it didn't go well. Oh, it we, didn't go over well with, with the other with the structured people. The right, right. Yeah, not yeah. at all. No, the structure doesn't like that at all, because yeah. they... they uh, this is a power. funny thing. Yeah, exactly right. But, you know, this is the funny thing. When you look at people that are in these four levels, they have a, there's a breakdown in communication between them, okay? And there's a fear uh, of the other party uh, and what their motives are and what yeah. they're, you know. So when you're in structure and your whole life is, is crafted around some Christian theology and doctrine and you want to impose that on others because it works for you, it should work for them. Right. All right, that's the philosophy. And then, But when they encounter somebody who's a, who's a skeptic, they don't know what to do with that because they don't spend any time thinking about that stuff. They try to avoid thinking right. about they that. They spent their whole life in this nice little closed box. Yeah, they see doubt as sin. And, and doubt is sin and anything other than what the party line is, right. what they've been told, right. is sinful and yeah. is heresy yeah. and it should be put down. So they blocked out that part of life. Right. and that, so, that comes right out of the Middle Ages, man. Yeah, well, right out of the Middle Ages. It's, it's deeply rooted into the human psychology. But sure. the thing is that if, uh, now the reverse of that is if you were brought up being a skeptic and, you know, uh, your parents were environmentalists, they cared about the environment, um, they they were very uh, highly responsible people who maybe scientists or whatever. Um, you know they, they were the types that would be worried about global warming and, and recycling, etc. Okay, these are highly responsible people, and they they don't they don't relate to chaos. They don't, and so they don't see the need for structure because they're not out there, uh, you know, uh, right. driving drunk and, and killing people. Right, right, they're, right. They're, you know, they're they don't not, know what chaos is. Yeah. They, they, They've uh, they've been able to uh, live their whole lives in a in a uh, environment where they have the structure support family that encourages them to be uh, free thinking and what have you, and so all of that 
if you look at the Christian community, all right, you're going to find a lot of people in chaos and in the, a lot of people in structure, and that's and the people in structure are always trying to pull the people in chaos into the church. Right. Hey, brother, you know you're struggling. You know you're, you right, fall right. off the bandwagon. You're drinking. You're smoking. Whatever. But Come they never on. Never help you get past that. Right. So that's you got level one and level two. And the problem is, is whenever you pull something, I'm just telling you from personal experience. Oh, I know. Okay? When you pull somebody out of chaos, right? Yeah. And you tell them, you know, hey, you know, this isn't good for you. Here's here's the thing you need to believe. Here's the yeah. thing this that. Is, yeah. This is what's right, and, believe if, this you, and if you don't yeah. believe this, you're wrong. Right. Let me tell you what happens. I've seen it happen many, many times. Those people go back to chaos. That's what happens, sure. That's exactly what happens. Now, sometimes they're told, hey, if you don't um, devote yourself to the church and what have you, uh, then you're going to fall away, and you're going to go back to your life of sin, only it's going to be worse than it was before. Man, that's and the then, stuff I used to preach. And it's like a curse, because people then in ultimately, as you said, uh, leave the church, and they go back to their uh, chaos, and it is worse than it was before. And, and, and so now they feel it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, and, and the problem, and again, this is I don't know if it applies to other circles, but this is certainly in Protestant Christian circles. Right. right? Oh, yeah. Okay, so... The problem is, is once they get in, once you pull them out of chaos and you put them in structure, they're never given the opportunity to grow, to be skeptical, to right. ask questions. How do you learn? How do you grow? You yep. ask questions. You right. you challenge people's beliefs. You challenge your own beliefs, just right. like what we're doing here with this podcast yeah. and what we're doing with each other. It's like yeah. my new job. I don't learn unless I make mistakes sometimes. Absolutely. you know. I, I burn myself. I learn not to do that. It, it's pretty you know simple. I mean? Yeah. Right? That's, yeah. So that's the thing when you uh, you adopt some Christian dogma or doctrine or whatever, but then you're told not to doubt. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. And the I doubting mean, is a sin. What are you going to go through your whole life trying not to doubt? Really? I mean, yeah. Come then on. You, then you feel like a sinner because you doubt. So it's a, it's you a, can't stop doubting. So guess what? You throw all this junk away and you go back to chaos. Yeah. Well, you don't want to be a hypocrite. You yeah. Know? So you feel like your choice is be perfect or be a hypocrite, and you can't be perfect. Right. So what, because you know everybody else is perfect. everybody else appears to be perfect. To be, they yeah. present perfect right. to you every day on right. church Sunday. Yeah. You know, you Sundays. Think, you don't so see them on Tuesday. You don't know. Right. <laughs> so that's. So what we're describing here is the uh, conundrum. I call it the conundrum um, of Christianity because Christianity is saying, oh, you can't doubt, you can't question, and skepticism is wrong and atheists are going to hell. And this is a problem. Actually, when you say Christianity, I think what you mean is as a religion. Well, yeah, what else is there? Even if you look into the New Testament scriptures, uh, my favorite uh, story about that that nobody ever talks about, right? right? But there was actually even a, uh, uh, oh, back when I listened to that stuff, a preaching show called the Berean Call. And um, the Apostle Paul went to Berea, which was a a town, I think, in Greece or something. And he told him about the gospel, he told him about the Messiah. And when he left, the scripture says, or the Bible says, that they searched the scriptures to see if what he was saying was true. Yeah. Right? And it says they were of more noble character. Yeah, more noble character because they searched the scriptures. They right. didn't just throw it away or believe it immediately. Right. They wanted to know for themselves. Right. And, I mean, again, this is all my opinion, but if you want to become, uh, what you say, mysticism, if you want to reach that fourth yeah. level, yeah. then that's the attitude that you have to have. You noble can, character. You, you, you can start out with structure, yeah. but skepticism is good. Yeah. It's healthy. Yeah. And if there is a God, and if you're a Christian, and if he saved you, then he saved you. Mm-hmm. Asking and questioning and doubting are part of the process. Yeah. All you got to do is read the Old Testament. You'll find any of that. 
And again, I'm only talking from a Christian perspective, right? And um, which is, you know, where I'm coming from, I guess, if you will. Yeah, when you make um, reference to God, you're making reference to the God of the Bible. The, I'm, I'm making now, reference to the God of Abraham, yeah, through the through the Messiah. I find that Christ. more and more when I when I make reference to God, I'm not referring to the God of the Bible. Okay. I'm finding that for myself personally, when I when I refer to God, I'm more and more I'm referring to um, the the generating principle of life that underlies physical reality. That I'm referring to. The, the formless, the source, um, the architect of the hologram, you know? Like, you, well, now you had me until you said architect of the hologram. Okay. Because the architect of the hologram... I mean, that I was, sounds like I was a gonna father say, figure, doesn't it? Yeah, see, I was going to say, you know, that's very Dow. Yeah. We talking about this very Dow. Yeah. Until you said the architect of the hologram. Right. Now you got a white a man with a white beard sitting behind a desk exactly. and Neo's like, yeah. And you got a personality that's a creator. Whereas yeah, yeah, now yeah. it's just it's, it it creates form out of its yeah. essence. It, it, so I, I'm still I'm still a little bit a mix mixture of both. You, you see what I mean? Uh, oh yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. And so um, I got one foot in one and one foot in the other. It's very frustrating. Um, well, there's a certain um, there's it's frustrating because there's the certainty that you used to rely upon is no longer there. Mm-hmm. And so the thing I uh, but. But Jesus said, "Blessed are the confused, for they shall inherit." So, um, <laughs> let me read that again, man. <laughs> I'll double um, check that. I mean, I, I I think that when you are certain, that's when you're in trouble. I guarantee you, that is when that's when you're in real trouble. Yeah. When you stop asking, when you stop doubting, when you stop checking, when you stop seeking. Yeah. You know, that's when you're in trouble. Yeah, that's when the waveform collapses into a fact. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's not living. I mean, no. living is dynamic and changing and growing and maturing. And, mm-hmm. um, and so, you know, there's two kinds of belief. You can have a belief that's static and you can have a belief that's dynamic. And here's a good analogy. Actually, let's change the word static to stagnant. Well, you're correct. It is stagnant, like water, and it's dead, and it's it's That's it's. Right. It, and, but the reason I use static is because I have a great metaphor for static and dynamic, and that's if you are a, you're a rock climber, you might have a rope with you. Okay. Now there's right. two kinds of rope. There's the static rope, and there's a dynamic rope. Okay. Now the difference is that the dynamic rope will stretch. So if you if you slip and you fall, it'll it'll bounce you right back up. It'll stretch out. Okay. okay? If you're on a static rope and you slip off the rock, it's go- take all the weight and it's going to snap. Right. And you're going to fall to your death. You want the okay? dynamic. You don't want a static rope you when you're climbing a mountain. And climb. you don't want a static belief when you're trying to get through life. That's right. That's right. It has to be adaptable. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've seen um, too many people with a static belief. And then uh, there's actually in uh, trauma therapy, there's this idea, it's from cognitive processing therapy, of the just world belief, okay? And the just world belief comes from the idea that that we're taught. You were taught this, I was taught this, everybody in this room was taught this, that good things happen to good little boys and good little girls. So, therefore, if something bad happens to you, then you must be bad. Now, when somebody does experience trauma in some way, they believe, typically, that they must be bad because it happened to them. Mm-hmm. That's an example of a static belief because that just world belief crumbles 
with the truth, and the truth is, the, 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 I've said it once today and I'll say it again, the truest saying ever uttered by a human being was on a bumper sticker back in the 1980s. Shit happens. And um, now the question is, is why does it happen, right? I'm stuck on the 80s. How do you know it was the 80s when that phrase, I mean, are you an anthropologist? Oh, maybe it was, I'm just thinking about Forrest Gump. Sorry. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Man, you just stepped in shit. It happens. Hey, that's an idea. Yeah. Do you know Kung Fu? Oh, yes, I once stepped in it. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't remember what movie that was, but it, I don't know. it, it gets stuck in my head. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's I funny. mean. What's a good movie? Have you seen any good movies recently, or do you know of any that are coming out? Everything that I've seen has either been kiddie movies or uh, Marvel comics. Have you, you know, I'm a Star Trek fan, and I just read yeah. yesterday. I read that there's a Quentin Tarantino is thinking about doing a Star Trek movie. Can you imagine? I'm gonna run for the hills, man. Oh, it would be I great. Just, oh, I've been a fan of his from since his first first thing he ever How did was True Romance. How many ways can you blow a part of Klingon? That's all I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm ready for something different. I mean, like, there's this, I don't know if you've tuned into the Discovery, the new series, but... Yeah, I've seen the whole thing. There's some good stuff. Yeah, I, I watched the great. first season. The second season is good, too. You know, this kind of gets back to our subject here, because the, during that first season, there was a scene where um, they, they, they crossed over into this other dimension. You right, know, the, yeah. The mirror, mirror effect. Right. The mirror-mirror effect from yeah. the original. Okay. And there was a scene there where... Um, the, the actress who's playing the, uh, I guess her name is Michael, Michael. in the show. Yeah, Michael right. Burnham, yeah. And she has this monologue during this one scene, um, and she says something, she's talking about the darkness that resides within the human being. Yeah. We are all human here. We all start out with the same drives and same needs. Maybe none of us, no matter what world we're from, really know what darkness is waiting inside. End quote. Michael Burnham from Star Trek Discovery, 2017. Your willingness is what matters. You are the one who has to resist the devil. You're the one who has to keep your heart pure. You're the one who has to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. You're the one who has to make your calling sure, run the race with endurance. Well, how can that happen if you got this sinful nature dwelling in you, inherited from Adam, that prevents you even from producing deeds worthy of repentance? So quickly, I'm not going to go into a whole long dissertation of this. It could take hours to go through the whole history behind what happened in the 4th century and how it set the stage for what occurred the rest of the way through history up to the Reformation. But basically, Augustine, who was, lived from 354 to 430 AD, around 4th century Rome, he brought into Christianity, out of his Manichaeism or Gnostic background, the Manichaeisms were just, it's a Persian cult that swept into Rome in ancient times because it removed the fear of God in the fear of any kind of judgment, so man could go on living in his sins and his indulgences, which was very popular at the time in the gaming and the, in the Colosseums and all that in Rome at that time. Like even Augustine, he was addicted to lust. So that was the perfect escape for him to create this dual nature, which he blended over into Christianity. So he came out of the 17 years of this teaching under Manichaeism teaching. And he himself was, uh, well, Augustine was not going to, abstained from sexual intercourse, as you see in his, his, uh, his confessions. He was addicted to it, and this is the reason this was the perfect teaching to get him out of his obligation to come clean to, before God. So under that, 
he converted to Christianity out of this when, it, when Manichaeism was outlawed in 382 AD, you know, after Constantine uh, established his uh, rule in Rome because of the civil war that happened in Rome, and he established his power base in the West, and he made Christianity uh, into the Roman religion at the time, blended all the pagan worships and temples. That's where all the, the uh, idolatry and everything comes in in the Catholic Church, because they blended it all together under one church at the time, and that became the official church of Rome. So another guy that followed uh, Constantine outlawed these Manichaeism cults, and on pain of death. So Augustine switched, switched over to Christianity because he didn't want to face a chopping block. So out of necessity, he converted, but he brought all his Neo-Plato teachings into it. And that's where this all stuff originated from Platoisms way, way back in Persia. This Neo-Platonist dual nature concept. So he brought in the immutability of God, that God does not change. See, he was upset with the Old Testament and the reason he didn't convert earlier until it was an absolute necessity to Christianity into the Catholic Church, because he was a professor of rhetoric in Milan as a very young age, and it was a very prestigious uh, position for a young man to hold, and he was rubbing shoulders with all the high and the mighty at the time, but he had to convert over at a necessity because of uh, what the emperor did. But up until that time, he was teaching all the ancient philosophies of Neoplatonism which was number one, the immutability of God. Everything was preordained, fated, uh, predestined, elect, and all, all, the, all the roots of what we would call Calvinism or Lutheranism was in his teaching, although he didn't come up with the acronym TULIP, but he set the stage for it. He, he's, he has the core, the core beliefs are in his writings. So God doesn't change. So he looked at the Old Testament, like I said, and the reason he hesitated to convert till it was a necessity was because he, in the Old Testament we see God changing his mind all the time with Israel and uh, through the prophets. And we see it, we see it constantly, him uh, averting God's judgment because the people changed and then God changed his mind and postponed the judgment. So he got into this guy in, in Rome called Ambrose, another so-called bishop, and, bishop, and this guy told him, well, don't worry about it. See, them were just stories. Them are allegories. God really is immutable. He never changes, just like you've been taught. He said, oh, that's great. That's a great deal. So when it became a necessity to convert, well, he easily converted then because his mother was already a member of the, the Roman Catholic Church at the time, being part of the hierarchy of Rome, which was very popular, even though they partook in all their indulgences, much like the modern church. His father was remained a pagan throughout his life, uh, a, being of a military background. He was a he was a very high up guy as well. That's why Augustine could rub shoulders with these people, and he was a prolific writer and speaker and a and a master of Latin, the Latin language, which was the language of scholars at the time. He never spoke Greek. He didn't read or write Greek. That's why they wrestled the scriptures. Him and Ambrose translated the Bible into what's called the the Latin Vulgate. The Vulgate then became the Catholic Bible up through the next 1,500 years or so. And in that Bible, he took Romans 5.12, and instead of it saying, you know, it was uh, that death passed through sin, thus sin spread to all men because all sinned, they took that and they said, all sinned in Adam. So there you go. They twisted that scripture, which is still that way in the Vulgate, all sinned in Adam, meaning they in, you inherit the sin of Adam, the guilt of Adam, and the penalty of Adam, be, just by being born. 
And then he also changed the word desires or evil desires in Romans 7, 8, where it says, sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desires, for apart from the law, sin was dead. He changed that word and he created a word in, in Latin called concupiscence, meaning that the natural desires meant that you had this inbred, corrupted nature of sin. See, because they knew man was born with a moral conscience and natural inclinations, a moral conscience accusing or excusing you, just like it says in Romans 2 about the Gentiles. So he had a moral conscience and natural inclinations and desires. So he said that the very fact that those desires, concupiscence, that, that meant you were evil. Just because you desired to have relations with your wife, or you desired to eat or to sleep, that meant you were a sinner. You were born, you were born in this lump of sin. He, he would call it one big lump of sin. So he brought in the immutability of God. The concept of original sin was a dual-nature Gnostic concept out of his Manichaeism background. Before that, no one taught dual-nature before this. No one. No one taught Paul's writings meant that the Christian had this dual-nature lurking inside him. They looked at the flesh as what it means, sarks, flesh, that which covers the bones, meaning the passions and desires of the flesh given over to sinful passions. Now, for examples, like I said, you can go to my website, you can get hundreds of quotes on free will and sin and all these, all these things from the early saints. These are the guys that were hand-trained by the apostles, by John or Paul, are their direct disciples in the second century. That's who I quote. The anti-Nisan fathers, as, as they're called uh, technically in the, in the manuals. The ones before the year 400. Because after that, things started to get a little corrupt. Although there were people... Because Augustine went after him very brutally. He went after his opponents and wiped them out. Even though he had to hold uh, uh, trials against them with the deck stacked in his favor so he could pronounce them excommunicated and then heretics so they'd be expelled from the Roman Empire. So this, this is how he eliminated his opposition and got the Bible into Latin instead of Greek, the common language of the people, and taught all this stuff, and it became ingrained into teaching to this day. They still teach heretic Augustine's teachings in the seminaries and the Bible colleges to this day, as though he was some great theologian. And he was the biggest heretic that ever lived. The reason that John Calvin rejected all ancient theologians and dismissed their writings on free will, except for Augustine, is because all ancient theologians taught the freedom of the will, except for Augustine. Gregory Boyd said, This in part explains why Calvin cannot cite anti-Nicene fathers against his libertarian opponents. Hence, when Calvin debates Piguis on the freedom of the will, he cites Augustine abundantly, but no early church fathers are cited. George Predeman said, The peculiar tenets of Calvinism are in direct opposition to the doctrines maintained in the primitive Church of Christ. George Predeman said, There is a great similarity between the Calvinistic system and the earliest heresies. The Reformers sought to return the Church to early Christianity, but they actually brought it back to earlier heresies because they didn't go beyond Augustine. They didn't go far back enough. Rather than returning the church to early Christianity, they actually resurrected Augustinian Gnostic doctrine. The Methodist Quarterly Review said, 
At the Reformation, Augustinianism received an emphatic reinforcement among the Protestant churches. The Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics said, It is Augustine who gave us the Reformation. For the Reformation, inwardly considered, was just the ultimate triumph of Augustine's doctrine. The Reformation came, seeing that it was on its theological side, a revival of Augustinianism. The Reformation was to a great extent a revival or resurrection of Augustinian doctrine and a further departure from early Christianity. Gnosticism, Augustinianism, Lutheranism, Calvinism, they all have a lot in common. Augustinianism, Lutheranism, and Calvinism all teach Gnostic views of human nature and free will, but under a different name. It's the same old Gnosticism, but in a new wrapper. While other doctrines also seem to have originated within Gnosticism, no doctrine has spread so widely and with so much acceptance as the doctrine of man's natural inability to obey God. This doctrine has been taught by both Catholics and Protestants, by both Arminians and Calvinists. Consider the following facts that we have shown. Augustine's mind was greatly influenced by Manichaean thought on the topic of free will and human nature, and he clearly departed from the views of the early church. The minds of Luther and Calvin were highly influenced by Augustinian thought, and they admitted to departing from the views of the early church. And Augustine, Luther, and Calvin are undeniably the greatest contributors to Christian theology. Isn't it abundantly clear that Gnosticism or Manichaeanism has come into the church and has permeated it with its views? The Gnostic doctrine of the natural inability of man or the bondage of the will has crept into the church through a Trojan horse and has been masquerading as Christianity ever since. Gnostic views regarding human nature and free will have survived the centuries because Augustinianism, Lutheranism, and Calvinism have preserved it and promoted it. And while the doctrine of the natural inability of man has spread like a plague, finding acceptance in many churches, it's not taught in the Bible and it's not found in the earliest writings of Christianity. you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.